Hello, Roseanne and all of Roseanne's listeners. This is Justin from Mysterious Circumstances Podcast, and you're listening to California Dreaming. I know I'm listening all the way from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Sweet dreams, everybody. California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers. You want to see the audience that you're reaching. And you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, Visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcast and true crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and a review on iTunes or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can also support our show on Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you can gain access to one exclusive episode per month and there are currently more than two dozen episodes that you can binge. So it's a pretty good deal for just a dollar. And if you're not interested in a monthly donation, you could help with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping us going and ad-free. So thank you for all of your support. On January 14, 2018, a 17-year-old child, one of 13 who have now become known as the Turpin 13, escaped from a home where they had all been essentially held captive by their parents for their entire lives. They were abused and imprisoned for years, some of the oldest ones for decades. The one that escaped was able to contact police who arrived at their residence located in Paris, California, only to find a total of 12 more children, 13 including the one who managed to break free, living in absolutely squalid conditions. The Turpin 13 ranged in age from 2 to 29. Seven of them were adults. The parents, David and Louise Turpin, were immediately taken into custody and it would be the last day the couple would ever be free. The children were shackled not only to prevent them from escaping, but also prevent them from simply just being children or being people, living their lives. They were prisoners of their own mother and father. They were severely beaten. Sometimes they were strangled. They were only given one meal a day, and were permitted to shower only once per year. All of them had suffered such immense malnourishment that they were much smaller in size, 
stature, and weight than the average person of their same age. Many of the children had little to no knowledge of the world outside the confines of their own home. We did a short bonus a little more than a week after the news of the Turpin's arrest broke here on our show, and several podcasts have covered this extraordinary story, because it's really unlike anything we'd ever heard before. But following our episode, as the case was making its way through the court system, more specific details of the abuse began to emerge. According to the DesertSun.com, David Turpin sexually abused one of his daughters beginning sometime in 2013, though it is unclear if it was a one-time thing or if it was ongoing because he was said to have suddenly stopped when Louise Turpin was approaching. Louise Turpin had choked one of her daughters for watching a Justin Bieber video. She lifted one of her daughters by the neck for asking to use the toilet after undressing and getting into the bathtub. The children were prohibited from using the bathroom regularly, and when they were discovered in the home, their clothing was heavily soiled. The children all suffered from psychosocial dwarfism caused by severe malnutrition, and at least two of the Turpin girls will never be able to have children of their own. The children were regularly slapped, punched. They had their hair pulled so hard they were lifted off the ground. And while the family lived in Texas, David and Louise Turpin lived in an apartment, while the children they had at the time lived alone several miles away in a mobile home. Several of the oldest children had the education level of a third grader. David Turpin beat his children with oars, paddles, and tent poles. If the children misbehaved, they were locked in cages. They would also be chained to their beds for days, weeks, sometimes months. The children were only allowed to eat one at a time. They were required to stand up while eating, and when they were done, the next child was called into the kitchen. Their diet consisted of bologna sandwiches and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and frozen burritos. There are also lots of things that Turpins would do to torture the children emotionally, like buy all sorts of good and yummy foods and desserts for themselves and eat treats and pies in front of their kids, and they leave them on the counter so their children could see them but not touch or eat any of it. I mean, this is just taunting, mean, and cruel, on top of all of the physical and corporal punishment. A little more than a year after their arrest, the Turpins both decided to plead guilty to 14 felony counts, including cruelty to an adult dependent, child cruelty, torture, and false imprisonment. On April 19, 2019, both David and Louise Turpin were sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years, though it is expected that neither one of them will ever be granted parole based on the nature and brutality of the crimes for which they've been convicted. Some of the Turpin children were given the chance to speak to their parents at the sentencing hearing. The first one of their children to stand up in court and speak to them said, My parents took my whole life from me, but now I'm taking my life back. I'm in college now and living independently. I love hanging out with my friends and life is great. I believe everything happens for a reason. It may have been bad, 
but it made me strong. I fought to become the person I am. I saw my dad change my mom. They almost changed me. But I realized what was happening. I immediately did what I could to not become like them. I'm a fighter, I'm strong, and I'm shooting through life like a rocket. The next one of their children to stand up and speak said that he had a statement to read for one of his sisters and one to read for himself. He read his sister's statement first. I love both of my parents very much. Although it may not have been the best way of raising us, I'm glad they did it because it made me the person I am today. I just want to thank them for teaching me about God and faith. I hope they never lose their faith. God looks at the heart, and I know he sees theirs. I pray for them often. I am doing well. I am going to college full-time. I have an apartment, and I am able to transport myself independently by bus, bike, or walking. We are not supposed to necessarily understand God's will, but we are to only follow and trust in him. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, my thoughts than your thoughts. Never lose faith. You are one of his sheep, and he is constantly watching over his flock. I love you, and I want you to know God is all we need. And then their child read his own statement to his parents. I cannot describe in words what we went through growing up. Sometimes I still have nightmares of things that happened, such as my siblings being chained up or getting beaten. But that is the past, and this is now. I love my parents, and I have forgiven them for a lot of the things that they did to us. Since January... I have learned so much and become very independent. In June of last year, I learned to ride a bike, and ever since then, I've been hooked and riding it everywhere, such as to school, to the store, or sometimes I just go on long rides because I enjoy it so much. I live in an apartment and go to a nearby college. I'm getting a bachelor's degree in software engineering, and after I get my bachelor's degree, I'm going to get a job as a software engineer and go to school part-time to get my master's degree. I have also learned how to advocate for myself. I've learned how to swim, how to eat healthy and prepare a balanced meal. I've also been learning how to manage money wisely. Another statement was read on behalf of another one of the Turpin children by an attorney. I want the court to know that our parents loved each other and loved each of their children. People in Texas and even our friends said our parents were having too many children. Our parents didn't agree. They felt that God blessed them with all of their children, so they kept away the world and trusted God would guide them through life. Our mother wrote two small notes to our father. The first note reads, Always let God be in control of your life. We have a perfect life because God has always taken such good care of us. I'm so thankful to God for this. I would love for us to pray together on a regular basis. Spending our time with God will make our life more awesome. The second note reads, 
Children are the most awesome gift ever. I've always known our precious and wonderful children are. When they are your own, it's even more awesome. The best gifts ever. Through the years, things became more and more overwhelming, but they kept trusting in God. I remember our mother sitting in her recliner and crying and saying she doesn't know what to do. She didn't want to use rope or chain, but she was afraid her children were taking in too much sugar and caffeine. The reason our parents didn't stop buying the soda was because father needed it for work. He would fall asleep driving and get into an accident. They didn't know what else to do. I believe our parents feared if they asked for help, they would lose their children. Our parents didn't know that we were malnourished. They thought we all got the gene from our mother because she was so small. I remember mother saying, God has blessed us with healthy children. Our parents would get us pizza and Mexican food every other week, sometimes more than once a week. Our mother would always tell us to let her know if we're still hungry and she will give us more. Their first child went to a public school. They started noticing that she really wasn't learning much, so mother started teaching her at home and saw a big difference. Our parents decided to start homeschooling all their children. It worked out good at first, but through the years, it became very overwhelming. I believe our parents were afraid to put us in public schools for many reasons. They felt that God put it on their hearts to homeschool. When we came to California, people treated us so much better, and people started telling us our family was a blessing. Our parents finally felt safe and started taking us out as a family. They got us annual passes to Disneyland and took us to see the Grand Canyon and Flintstone Park, Las Vegas, etc. Every year for as far back as I can remember, our parents tried to give us the nicest Christmas they could. They would get us what we wanted, even if they couldn't afford it. They always tried to keep up with our birthdays every year, too. Closer to the end, things became more overwhelming again. I truly believe most of this was because our mother lost both of her parents in 2016. I feel that 25 years is too long. I believe with all my heart that our parents tried their best to raise all 13 of us, and they wanted to give us a good life. They believed everything they did was to protect us. If at all possible, I would really appreciate if the court would place our parents as close to the detention center they are in right now, so if we ever want to visit them, we can. Also, I want the two-year restraining order lifted, and I want to be allowed to talk to both of my parents by phone. Thank you for hearing my statement. During the readings of all of those statements, both Louise and David Turpin openly wept in court, listening to their children and the words that they had to say to them. After the children's statements were finished, David Turpin attempted to address the court, but was unable to compose himself and requested to have his attorney read it for him. Your Honor, I thank God for all of my children. Each one of them is a blessing from God. My homeschooling and discipline had good intentions. I never intended for any harm to come to my children. I'm sorry if I have done anything to cause them harm. 
I'm glad we were able to resolve this case without any of my children being forced to testify. I love my children, and I believe my children love me. I hope and pray that my children will stay close to each other and look out for each other since their mother and father cannot be there for them. I hope the very best for my children and their future. I hope my oldest son successfully completes his two college degrees that he's been working on. At this point, David Turpin interrupted to amend his statement, and he said himself, I hope that my oldest son and four daughters currently in college successfully complete the degrees that they are working on, and I hope that they are successful in their chosen professions. I wish my second son success in his career plan and completing whatever additional education may be required. I wish happiness and success for my other children as they complete their lower level education and make productive plans for their future. I'm so proud of each and every one of my children. I miss all of my children and I will be praying for them. Louise Turpin read her statement next. I want to thank you, Your Honor, and the court. I'm sorry for everything that I've done to hurt my children. I love my children so much. I'm blessed to be the mother of each one of them. I only want the best for them. Their happiness is very important to me. They are very smart and amazing individuals. I hope they get all the education they need to make their dreams come true. They deserve only the best in life. I don't want any of them to be sad or depressed because of all of this. I want them to know that mom and dad are going to be okay. I also want them to know I believe God has a special plan for each of them. I really look forward to the day that I can see them, hug them, and tell them that I'm sorry. I want them to know how special they are and how very proud I am of them. I pray for my children every day. And I want to say again how truly sorry I am for everything that I've done to hurt them, and I love them more than they could ever imagine. So dreamers, as you can see, the children are somewhat divided in how they feel towards their parents and how they intend to move forward. As some of them wish to have the protective orders against them lifted, while some of them opted to have them kept in place. The judge went on to explain to the Turpins and to the court what a gift that children are to parents, to families, to society, and to the world because of the joy that they bring us as parents and families, but also because of the untapped potential that they have to make the world better, if not by something that they do or achieve, but by also just being a productive, meaningful citizen. And because of the selfish, cruel, and inhumane treatment of their own children, they deprive them, their families, their friends, society, especially the two of them, Louise and David Turpin, they deprive themselves of all those gifts. Their lives have been permanently altered in their ability to learn, grow, and thrive. They have caused their mental, physical, and emotional development to be delayed, but they will go on to thrive not because of the two of them, but in spite of them. The judge told the Turpins that they have severed their ability to interact and raise their children, and that the only reason they are receiving less than the maximum punishment in prison is because that they've accepted responsibility 
and spared their children from having to relive the humiliation and the horror that they endured in that house of horrors. The judge sentenced both of them to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. Today, David Turpin is 58 years old and is being housed at Mule Creek State Prison in Ione, California. Louise Turpin is 51 years old and being housed at Central California's Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. They are not all that close to one another. Ione and Chowchilla are about 120 miles or 193 kilometers apart. So if their children do want to visit them, it's a couple hours drive to see both of them. And I really don't know if the children are in the Paris, California area or not, but Paris is about five to seven hours away from Chachilla and Ion, respectively. The Turpins will be eligible for parole in April of 2036, when David Turpin is 74 and Louise Turpin is 67. So it is very possible that the both of them will live to their parole eligibility date. But whether or not they will be granted parole, many say it isn't likely because of the severity of their crimes. But you know, if their children come and speak and ask for their parents to be granted parole, it could possibly happen. Some of the children might come and ask for the parole to be denied. I personally am having a hard time deciding how I feel about the Turpins ever seeing freedom again. My first instinct is to say, no way. These two people aren't even getting anywhere close to the kinds of treatment that they put their children through all those years. Their imprisonment is a cakewalk compared to what they put their kids through. But then when I think about the children, the ones of theirs that have decided to forgive them, and how much the possibility of their parents being in prison forever hurts them. I truly feel for how they feel. But then I start thinking and I waffle again. You know, that's just too freaking bad. When people do what the Turpins did, they just don't deserve forgiveness or freedom, no matter what, even if it is some of their own children doing the forgiving. And that's even all the more reason that the Turpin parents don't deserve these children with their big, huge, loving, forgiving hearts in their lives. If you ask me, the Turpins knew better. And this is the price that they have to pay. And the children are just going to have to hopefully someday understand that. So we know how this story has ended, at least for now. The Turpin children are all out there in the world somewhere, being the gifts to the world that they were meant to be, hopefully living their best lives with the love and support of people and families who can truly give them everything they need to realize their dreams and potential. But where did this all begin? How did the Turpins go from young newlyweds to holding their 13 children captive out here in the Inland Empire city of Paris, California. Well, at least one person close to Louise Turpin has spoken openly about their lives together as children and how at a young age she found her way to David Turpin, her sister, Elizabeth Flores. 
Louise has another sister, Teresa Robinette, who spoke to Megan Kelly, who really hadn't spoken to her nieces and nephews by phone or by Skype in seven or eight years since this all went down. And Teresa described the kids as friendly, but the conversations were kind of weird because they weren't very talkative. Though she did feel that they had a certain level of book smarts about them, she thought the homeschooling had stifled their ability to socialize because they were incapable of carrying on meaningful conversations. Teresa mentioned in her interview with Megan Kelly that her mother, herself, her sisters, Elizabeth and Louise, were sexually abused by a male member of their family over a sustained period of time. And it has been speculated that a part of the reasoning behind the direction Louise would eventually go in life may have very well been because of the abuse that she suffered at the hands of this trusted adult. And it was a person whom they were continually brought around throughout their childhood and adolescence. Teresa did not name the person who committed these acts of sexual abuse. She described it as the big family secret. The other adults in the family protected him. And there was just so much to it, so much abuse going on, that it just stayed a family secret. But Louise Turpin's other sister, Elizabeth, she did name him. And I want to share her story with you on this 122nd episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Becoming a Turpin. I'm going to say this right off the top here. Elizabeth Flores is Elizabeth Flores. Yes, she is Louise Turpin's sister. And one of the first things that she would say is the person that she used to be is gone. The person she is now known as is the sister of the lady in Paris, California, who kept her 13 children chained, shackled, starved, filthy, and abused inside her home, along with her husband, the children's father. But Elizabeth Flores is more than that. She is a sister, a daughter, a wife, a mother, an aunt, and a survivor. She is, in her own right, a distinct individual who is hopefully finding a way to not allow her life or the lives of her other family members to be defined by the actions of one person. Elizabeth would also be the first person to begin with blaming herself for not coming forward sooner or saying something about what she knew to be going on inside her sister's home. My first inclination is to say, no, 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 no. This is a situation where there are two people who need to be held accountable for what was going on inside the Turpin house. Now, I know that there are other issues going on here with the Turpin home having been registered as a private school which is something the Turpins had been doing for years leading up to this. And California is one of the few states that the only requirement to register a home as a private school is an affidavit, which I've heard is a theory as to why the Turpins chose California in the first place, the lack of oversight. And I'll get into that later on towards the end of this episode. So yes, the state of California should have done more to regularly check in on these types of homeschooling private school dwellings to make sure everything is on the up and up. 
It would have only taken one surprise inspection in all those years to figure out that something dreadful was going on behind those closed doors. But right now, as we are handing out blame, it is David and Louise Turpin who are solely responsible for the atrocities that went on inside that house. Maybe Elizabeth could have done or said something earlier. I've said it before. The family is our first line of defense when it comes to something like this. If the family knows or sees that something dreadful is happening or is about to happen, how is anyone going to get a warning or a heads up if the people closest to the family stays quiet? I said it about the San Ysidro McDonald shooter, James Huberty. Some of you didn't agree when I said that his wife should have spoken up and called 911 when her husband grabbed his cache of weapons, headed out the front door, and told her he was going hunting for humans. You felt as though that she might have been afraid or abused herself, or that she didn't take what he was saying seriously because who does that, right? Who says they're going hunting for humans and actually goes and does it? In this case, Elizabeth has openly said that much of this could have been prevented if she had said something sooner. You listening can come to your own conclusions about Elizabeth when we are finished, but I don't think many of you, if any of you at all, are really going to hold her accountable. There was so much abuse going on for so many years, and Elizabeth had struck me from the very beginning as quite naive and vulnerable herself. And even for a period of time, she had been subjected to some of the abuse perpetrated by David and Louise. So her ability to fully grasp the gravity of what was going on inside the home was probably lacking. She'll ask herself the same questions we all ask. Who does something like this? How is this even a thing that can go on for so long and nobody taking notice? Honestly, I think the Turpins did just enough to keep up a facade of normalcy to the outside world with their social media postings of mom and dad and their 13 children in all these matching outfits, smiling like nothing is wrong at all. The outside of the home, it was one of those nice little cookie-cutter stucco houses, three-car garage, manicured front lawn. Looking at it from the street, no one would have ever known just walking by. Well, Elizabeth had her own first-hand experiences years ago with David and Louise, and we're going to talk about that today. Elizabeth was the middle of three girls. Louise was the eldest, Teresa the youngest. They were raised in a very religious home. They went to church every Sunday, and her mom and dad very much wanted to instill those Christian values in their three girls. Elizabeth will admit that they kind of looked like the picture-perfect family. And while she says there was never really any sort of physical abuse between her parents, there was always a lot of verbal arguments. The fighting between mom and dad would rage on all evening and into the night. It was hard on Elizabeth, and it caused her a great deal of fear and anxiety. And she would sometimes just be laying in bed listening to the seemingly endless arguing carrying on throughout the house. And Louise, who could see how distressing it was for Elizabeth, did what she could to help comfort her. She'd come 
and lay next to her all night if she needed to, hugged her, held her, reassured her that she would be okay. Elizabeth found so much comfort with older sister Louise. They were so close because Louise had been so protective of her. Elizabeth said when they were kids, Louise was her best friend. The person that we all saw for the first time when Louise Turpin's mugshot flashed across our news feeds, that is a person Elizabeth did not recognize anymore. She was finding out just as the rest of us were. As the news started coming out of Paris, California about this so-called house of horrors that was making headlines across the country and the world. It was the beginning of the end for this years-long nightmare that the Turpin children had endured. But it was also the beginning of opening up old wounds for Elizabeth and her family. Elizabeth's grandfather, John Taylor, her mother's dad, had sexually abused several of the girls within the family. It had dated back to when their mom was a child. And then when she had her girls... Louise, Elizabeth, and Teresa, the abuse continued with them, as well as with at least one of their cousins. His way of manipulating his grandchildren into staying quiet and keeping secrets were a couple of tactics. One is he would make sure that if there was a present that any of the girls wanted for either Christmas or their birthday, he would be the one to get that present for them and continually remind them that he was the one that gave it to them. When he would commit the abuse, he would hush them if they attempted to cry or resist by holding his hand over their mouth so they could not make any noise and tell them that all this means is that he loves them and remind them that this had to stay a secret between them. But for Elizabeth, when her grandfather began abusing her, She did open up to Louise about it, told her what was going on with their grandfather. They called him Papa, but I am not going to call him that. He wasn't just Elizabeth's abuser, he was also Louise's abuser too. And it had been going on for years, as Louise was several years older than Elizabeth. I do need to bring up another important aspect of the abuse. According to Louise and Elizabeth's younger sister, Teresa, she has made the claim that their mom allowed their grandfather to abuse her daughters in exchange for money. As far as I know, Teresa is the only one who has said that. Their mother died in 2016, as did their father. So, yeah, their grandfather actually outlived both of their parents. Once Elizabeth confided in Louise as to what was going on, Louise became ever more protective of her sister and started to step in. When their abuser would tell Elizabeth it was time to come with him, Louise would get between them and insist that she go with him instead. Louise volunteered herself in order to save her sister from as much of the abuse as she could. And the girls continued to keep this secret between them. It was never talked about. He was never accused or confronted or charged or anything. And that's the way things remained all the way up until 2018 when he finally died at the age of 95. That's when at least Elizabeth decided 
It's been a secret long enough. And she came forward and spoke openly about the magnitude of the abuse of all the girls in her family endured because of this man. This family kept all of this under wraps for well over half a century, possibly even closer to three quarters of a century. That is an astounding amount of time for this man to have attacked and destroyed so many young lives with complete impunity. And he was allowed to leave this world with his dignity intact, at least to those on the outside looking in. It's also worth mentioning that their abuser was a highly decorated war veteran, having been the recipient of two Purple Hearts, the Silver Star, five Bronze Stars, and a Good Conduct Medal. That's rich, right? A Good Conduct Medal? (sighs) And this guy, to go and live to the age of 95 years old, and these girls, now women, had to continue keeping this man's secrets for so many years is absolutely unimaginable. But then everything changed, at least for Louise. In the summer of 1983, just after she had turned 15 years old, Louise met and started a relationship with a then 21-year-old David Turpin. His family was relatively well-known in their hometown, which was located in Mercer County, West Virginia. They were a devout religious family, but those who had gone to school with David recall him as being largely unremarkable, if they even recalled him at all. He was known as quiet, nerdy, a homebody, who joined the chess and science clubs in school, and he was also the treasurer of the Bible club. He excelled academically, graduating in the top of his class, and he wanted to go on to study electrical engineering. And as unremarkable as David Turpin was growing up, Louise Turpin was even more so, as nobody had really any memories to share about her once the story broke almost two years ago now. Louise and David had actually met about five or six years earlier at some church function But it wasn't until 1983 that they began a romantic relationship because obviously she was only 10 years older. So at the time, Louise was still very young and Elizabeth was certain that Louise specifically sought someone out to help take her out of this abusive situation that she was trapped in. So in 1985, Louise pulled Elizabeth aside and asked her something. She wanted to know if she liked David. And Louise was like, yeah, I like him. He seems really nice. Well, Louise told Elizabeth that she was going to marry David and that they were going to have children and she could come over and visit with them and hang out whenever she wanted. Again, Elizabeth was a bit naive. The full extent of what Louise was telling her really didn't register with her right away. It did sink in the following day when Elizabeth arrived home from school for the first time alone. She had packed up a small bag that morning and prepared to start a new life with David Turpin. And Louise had made Elizabeth promise that she wouldn't tell anyone where she went or who she was with. Louise had gone to school that day like she normally did. David Turpin showed up at her high school 
and somehow managed to convince the staff to allow him to sign her out of school. At which point they took off and got married in Parisburg, Virginia. By this time, Louise's parents had got the authorities involved as David had essentially kidnapped their daughter. Now, the details of all of this are kind of sketchy, but it's my understanding that Louise's mom was okay with the relationship while Louise's dad strongly objected to it. And when the couple were finally caught in Texas and brought back to West Virginia, but by the time they made it back, it was like Louise's parents had flip-flopped on how they felt about their daughter's marriage. Suddenly, Louise's mom wanted to call the whole thing off when she had first been supportive of her being with David, and Louise's dad had changed his tune as well because he was like, Louise's made her decision, now she has to live with it. Louise and David eloping caused a huge rift in the family that they were never going to be able to recover from. So Louise's dad gave his permission for the couple to get married. He just figured that David and Louise were going to do whatever the hell they wanted to do, no matter what he had to say about it. So he decided he wasn't going to fight that battle anymore. The couple had another small wedding and shortly thereafter, Louise and David left again for Texas. Within six months of that, Louise's parents would be divorced. Their father held their mother completely responsible for what happened between David and Louise because she had been the one that allowed them to secretly see one another behind his back. So he packed up and left the family home. Though they had been long divorced, both their mom and their dad passed away in 2016 within three months of one another. Louise Turpin did not attend either funeral but David's parents did attend both of them. Louise running off and getting married was devastating for Elizabeth. Louise had been everything to her. She looked up to her. She'd been there for her, protected her. They were close, the best of friends, and now suddenly all of that was gone. And in short order, so was her father. Along with that came an increase in the frequency of her grandfather's abuse since Louise wasn't there to stand up for her or to prevent him from hurting her anymore. Louise was pregnant with the couple's first child in 1988 when she had just turned 20 years old and David was going on 27 years old. In quick succession, the couple followed up with children two, three, and four. By this time, Elizabeth had already graduated from high school and began attending college. Things at home for her had become even more tumultuous as her mom had gotten remarried and was having more children. That, with all the abuse that had been going on and would continue in the years to come, Elizabeth was at the end of her rope. Summer break was approaching and she decided to take a chance and ask Louise if she could come and stay with her and David and the kids while she was on break. Elizabeth was under the impression that David and Louise had this really fabulous life going on in Texas. David had a really great job working as a computer engineer for both Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman, which are both defense contractors. I believe I read a report at the time that the couple were arrested in 2018 that David Turpin was making about $11,000 a month. 
So anyway, when Elizabeth asked if she could come stay with them, they readily agreed. And it didn't take long for Elizabeth to realize that the life that she thought her sister had wasn't anything like she imagined. But she was stuck there for the summer. And as soon as I read about Elizabeth going to stay with her sister and her husband and her four kids, I thought right away, they're going to use her all they can as a babysitter and like a housekeeper and whatever else they needed. So after they went and picked up Elizabeth on the way back to Texas, they all made a detour to some gambling town with casinos. And I'm not sure exactly where they stopped, but if I had to take a guess, I'd say maybe it was in Mississippi or in Louisiana. But anyway, David and Louise wanted to do some gambling, so they pulled up and parked and told Elizabeth that they'd be back in a little while. And she was like, wait, what? You're going inside and gamble while I babysit your four little children out here in the car, including an infant? And Louise was like, yep, see ya. And they just up and went inside. Now, I would pause here and say that this is a totally bizarre thing to do. But then again, these are the Turpins that we're talking about here. So yeah, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Elizabeth was in complete disbelief that this was actually happening. She had no idea where they were at. They were sitting in this cold, dark parking lot. She's got these four little children to watch over. She was terrified. She stayed awake for as long as she could until finally... The exhaustion overcame her and she dozed off. And the next thing she knew, she was startled awake by the opening and closing of the car doors. As Elizabeth was starting to wake up out of her sleep, she realized that the sun had already risen. They were literally in the casino all night, leaving their children in the care of a teenager in a parking lot. Elizabeth was so angry, but she really had to do her best to try and keep how she was feeling to herself because Louise was making her feel like she was overreacting. This is no big deal. Just get over it. And she was going to have to because she was a long ways away from home and she had the entire summer ahead of her still. She really didn't want to start causing problems before they'd even got back to Texas yet. So she did what she could to let go of the anger and move on from the casino parking lot debacle. Soon, they were back on the road, headed to the Turpin home in Texas. It is not going to shock any of you listening when I tell you that when Elizabeth finally arrived at her sister's house, the place was a disastrous mess. There was just toys and trash and papers and takeout food containers and empty pizza boxes and clothes and just stuff strewn all about the house everywhere. The dishes were stacked up high in the sink, and it was really nothing like Elizabeth had expected. So her first instinct was to tell Louise, you know, let's get this taken care of. I want to help you. Let's tidy the place up. So they spent a good couple of days getting the house back into somewhat pretty good livable shape. But as the days passed, Elizabeth began noticing that She really wasn't seeing or spending much time with her sister's children. Like, at all. I mean, they're four pretty young kids. And the older ones, 
They're really not doing things that normal kids would be doing around the house while on summer vacation. They didn't talk much. They barely came out of their room. And they seemed to be very nervous and apprehensive about having any sort of exchange or interaction with their Aunt Elizabeth. They just weren't behaving like regular children behave. And when it came to the youngest, the infant, Louise, for the most part, would ignore the baby's crying. According to Elizabeth, the baby was kept in the playpen most of the day, and Louise made little to no effort to interact with the baby, to pick the baby up, to rock the baby, to play with the baby. It was totally bizarre. I really can't imagine blowing off a crying infant like that, and neither could Elizabeth. So when she asked Louise if she could hold the baby, she was just always told to just leave the baby alone. Louise finally said to Elizabeth she really didn't want her getting close to her kids because she didn't want her children to be exposed to her and her religious and spiritual beliefs, and it was best if she just keep her distance from her children. And Elizabeth is thinking to herself, what in the world would make her think that I'm going to be brainwashing her kids with religion and the like? She had no interest in talking to her kids about God, but Louise was pretty adamant that Elizabeth just keep her distance. And Elizabeth was like, okay, fine. You're the mom, not me. She figured her sister knew best. So Elizabeth just stopped trying to question it and went with the flow. But there were more things that Elizabeth found to be completely bizarre. Like, for example, the meal routine for the kids. Elizabeth would sit down at the dining room table and have dinner together with David and Louise. But the kids were not present while they ate. And when Elizabeth asked about the kids and when they were going to have dinner, Louise would just say, don't worry about it, they'll eat later. And this too is making Elizabeth feel kind of bad because they're eating ahead of the children who we all know now were starved and malnourished. And it seemed so backwards that they would be sitting there eating while the kids had to wait until they were finished before they could come down and have their meals. So then when Louise was ready to have the children for dinner, she would call them down to the table, but only one at a time, starting with the oldest first. The child would sit down at her plate. Louise would provide a helping of whatever it was they were eating. And the child would remain seated and quiet until Louise told her to go ahead and begin eating. Once she was finished with her plate, she was sent away, and the next child would be called down, and the same thing would happen. And the more Elizabeth saw what was going on in the home, the more she realized that Louise and David Turpin were pretty much controlling every single aspect of these kids' lives. They did not dare make a move or say a word without first being given authorization to do so by one or both of their parents. And when she came to think about it, Elizabeth could hardly recall any of her sister's children ever having said anything to her at all. They had essentially been trained to be seen when you are called to be seen and also to not be heard. Not a peep, not a sound. When Elizabeth inquired about their quiet dispositions, 
asking if they ever talked because anytime she would ask a simple question like how they were doing, did they like their dinner, she would receive no response. And Louise was just like, yeah, they talk. They'll talk if I tell them to talk to you. Eventually, Louise just told Elizabeth to basically mind her own business. These are her kids. She'll parent them any which way she sees fit and to just not question her about it anymore. So Elizabeth just dropped it. In the meantime, about a week or so after arriving at her sister's house for the summer, Elizabeth decided to start looking for a job. And Louise decided that she needed to lay out some restrictions when it came to what Elizabeth could and could not do. And these were not an option. The house rules were, she was not to associate with anyone that she works with on a personal level. That means no making friends, especially making friends and trying to bring them over to the house. Don't give out any information to anyone about where you live. She may not use her address. She cannot use her phone number to give out to anyone. Don't have anyone coming over or calling the house and no dating. And all Louise would say is that they needed to maintain their privacy and that she doesn't want anything to disrupt that. But at the same time, Louise did want Elizabeth out there working, but she did what she could to keep a close eye on her to make sure that she wasn't becoming too closely acquainted with anyone. When Elizabeth did find a job, Louise would drive her to and from work and make sure that she understood that if she broke any of her rules, she was going to find herself homeless out on the street with no place to go. So for the time being, like she had been doing, Elizabeth kind of just went along. By now, she was just looking forward to the summer being over with and going back home for the next semester. And this is also probably no surprise, but David Turpin started acting weird and inappropriate around Elizabeth too. There was an incident where Elizabeth was in the bathroom getting ready for work when someone started to try to open the door. Elizabeth announced that she was in the shower, but David came into the bathroom anyway, with Louise there too, following him in. And they just were teasing Elizabeth and taunting her in the shower, and she was freaking out, telling them to get out. David started asking her really inappropriate questions, personal stuff that's nobody's business, things that he should not be asking the teenage sister of his wife. And the more Elizabeth screamed and panicked for them to leave her alone, the more of a rise that they could get out of Elizabeth, the funnier the two of them thought this whole thing was. And she said her sister especially just was in hysterics with laughter, a kind of laughter that she had never heard come from her sister before. And it was really the first glimpse that Elizabeth got that the sister that she had grown up with the one that had been so protective over her when they were both being abused by their grandfather, is now doing the complete opposite. Elizabeth lost all trust that she had had in Louise as a sister, but she still had the rest of the summer to get through before she'd be able to go home. Now, Elizabeth hasn't exactly said how it was that she was so trapped here in this house. Based on the number of children that the Turpins have at this point, this time is estimated to be sometime in the early to mid-90s, maybe 93 or 94. 
We can guess that it's about that time frame based on the information that Louise and David now have four children, having had their first one in 1988. So to me, the most overwhelming thing going on here is a combination of two things that are happening with Elizabeth. She's afraid and she's inexperienced in dealing with serious adult situations. The Turpins were trying to do what they were doing to their own children, trying to program them to do and be how they want them to be. And it's just completely blindsided Elizabeth. I don't think things were all that great back home with her mom and the problems that were going on there. Coming to Louise and David's for the summer was an attempt to get a break from her family drama. So she probably feels like she can't just pick up the phone and call her mom for help. And other than that, she seems to have no idea who she can call for help. And what exactly is she supposed to tell them? My sister is totally weird and I need help getting home. Elizabeth is going to need help if she's going to be able to get out of the situation. But for now, she really has nobody to turn to. So she's just kind of stuck. At least until the summer comes to an end. Well, it didn't exactly go as planned. The end of summer came and it was becoming apparent that Elizabeth would not be heading home for the fall semester. Whenever she talked to her parents, Louise would be sitting right there listening to make sure that Elizabeth wouldn't be saying anything that she didn't want to be said. And Elizabeth's parents were like, school's about to start, when are you coming home? And with Louise within earshot, she told her parents that Louise had her hands full with all these kids, and she really needs her help around the house, So she was going to take another semester off so she could stay there and help her sister with her children. The reality was is Elizabeth had no way of getting out of Texas. She had no way to get back home. And Louise and David certainly weren't about to take her. So she was just kind of trapped there. The upside to all of this is Elizabeth did start becoming close to a man at work. Jonathan. They began dating, so there was at least this one good, positive thing going on in Elizabeth's life at this time. But eventually, Louise became suspicious that Elizabeth was breaking the rules that she had set. She began watching Elizabeth and what she was doing from the parking lot of her work. And before long, she caught her either talking to or maybe hugging, just doing something where it was obvious that she was having a nice moment with Jonathan not knowing that Louise was watching her. Louise confronted Elizabeth, just enraged that she would have the nerve to be breaking the rules that she had made. She said that she had disrespected her, disrespected her home, and that she was no longer welcome there, and demanded that Elizabeth turn over her keys to the house. And that was the end of that. Elizabeth had no place to go. All of her possessions were in her sister's house. Elizabeth turned to Jonathan, and he offered that she could come and stay with him. Fortunately, Jonathan's parents were very, very understanding, and Elizabeth was able to go and stay with them. Their relationship quickly advanced, and in under a year from the time Louise kicked her out, Elizabeth and Jonathan were married, and they moved several hours away. And Elizabeth really didn't care to look back at what she had gone through during the time that she was living with David and Louise. And she readily admits that she was so relieved to be out of that house that she didn't even stop and consider the children. She was only 19 years old at the time. 
I don't think she could have imagined what would have ended up happening in the years to come. And Louise was perfectly content to not have anything to do with her sisters or any members of her family for that matter. Louise and Elizabeth will go on to not speak for several years. Elizabeth eventually gave birth to her own children, and eventually either Louise reached out and made contact with her, or it was the other way around. Either way, the sisters got back in touch. Elizabeth did visit Louise a handful of times, but the years and space and distance It was just never going to be the same sister relationship that they'd once had as children. About the time that Elizabeth was around 33 years old or so, Louise had come over to visit with all of her kids, and by this time, she had 12 of them. And according to Elizabeth, it was pretty much the same as it was all those years ago when she only had four, and they were acting like programmed little robots. Elizabeth questioned Louise about her kids' weight. They seemed a little bit too skinny, but Louise insisted it was genetic. None of them can gain weight, even if they tried. And then Louise told her sister that she made the decision to homeschool all of her kids. And when Elizabeth heard that, she had had enough. That's when she decided to tell Louise exactly what she thought of this harebrained plan to homeschool all of these kids on her own. She basically told Louise that she is in no way capable of taking on that kind of responsibility, that she had no formal education herself to be trying to teach a bunch of kids. She is absolutely lacking all of the skills it takes to teach them. She has no sense of commitment, no sense of discipline. It's really one of those times that Elizabeth got real with Louise. You are unfit to teach these children. For God's sake, she's barely fit to parent all of them. And most importantly, Louise had never been willing to put her children first. Louise and David Turpin were all about themselves. They were number one. The children were never the priority. How is she even thinking she could possibly pull this off, this homeschooling nonsense? But to Louise, it was all noise. She wasn't listening. And then she let Elizabeth know that the decision had been made that they were going to start this new chapter in their lives with a move to California. You see, the Turpins had done their homework, and they had come to understand that the best bet of flying under the radar when it comes to homeschooling these kids as she sees fit, with little to no visits or oversight, would be in California. It was becoming clear to the now adult Elizabeth that her sister was hiding what she was doing from authorities, from law enforcement, or from anybody who would be trying to pry into their lives. Pulling them out of public school and hiding in plain sight in California were surefire ways that Louise and David could continue to carry on their own brand of child-rearing with little to no interference from anyone. Whatever the case was, Elizabeth just figured that there wasn't any more that she could do. Again, she could not have ever known what would end up happening after her sister moved all the kids to California. As troubled as she was by the decisions Louise was making, it hadn't risen to a level where she felt truly alarmed by what was going on with them. As usual, the Turpins became quite adept at making things appear to be okay on the surface. After they went to California, Elizabeth did not speak to her nieces and nephews any more than a handful of times over the next several years. 
And the pictures Louise would send Elizabeth, the pictures that she would be posting on Facebook, all of that had Elizabeth further believing that things were going really well with the kids. And you all know these pictures with the children all lined up from smallest to tallest in matching outfits. They take pictures at all of their outings. You know, at one time, they all had annual passes to Disneyland. And you know, that right there was a small fortune. And just out of curiosity, I went to check up on the prices of annual passes. And this hasn't really changed all that much over the years since possibly when the Turpins had their passes. But the Disney Southern California Select Passport was, is $400 a year. The Disney Flex Passport is $600 a year. The Disney Deluxe Passport is $800 a year. The Disney Signature Passport is $1,150 a year. The Disney Signature Plus Passport is $1,400 a year. And I'm not going to get into all of the different tiers that they have here, but let's just say that the Turpins got the bargain basement Southern California Passport for the each of them at a cost of $400 a year. And we'll say times 14 because children under two, I believe still get into Disneyland for free. So let's just say they have one that's still under the age of two. That would come to $5,600 a year for all of them to go to Disneyland. And that's the cheapest one. So they're just doing enough to keep everything looking fine to the people outside looking in. It's enough to keep anyone from asking too many questions. The pictures were a very, very strategic part of keeping it looking and feeling normal. But Elizabeth did still have this nagging feeling that something was very off with the kids. One of the last times that she Skyped with her eldest niece. Now, mind you, this Turpin child is no longer a child. She's getting into her mid-20s at this point. But to Elizabeth, she still looks so tiny and young for her age. And it's clear to her that her niece was afraid to talk to her or speak to her. And that's when Elizabeth noticed that Louise was lingering around in the background, listening in and keeping a close eye on what their conversation was about. And it was clear that her niece was being very measured with all of her answers to the questions that she was asking. And before long, her niece said that she had to go and abruptly ended their video call. Elizabeth received the news pretty much when the rest of us did. Thirteen children found abused, emaciated, and shackled in a California home. No matter how sheltered the Turpins wanted or tried to keep their children from knowing or understanding what life is really supposed to be like, they obviously knew enough to know that what they were going through wasn't right. As a matter of fact, it's been reported at least some of the children have been plotting an escape for as many as two years by 2018. On January 14th, after their parents had gone to bed, Two of the children got out of the house through a window, but shortly thereafter, one of them became overcome with fear and decided to turn back. But the other child, who was 17 years old at the time, stuck to the plan to get help for herself and her 12 siblings. She had with her an old cell phone. She managed to get her hands on it and its charger without her parents' knowledge, or if they knew she had the phone, 
They figured it was no good because it was not activated. If the Turpins knew one of their kids had access to an old cell phone, what they probably didn't realize is that one of the few things you can do with any deactivated cell phone is call for emergency services. Either they didn't know or they didn't think any of their children were capable of attempting something as daring as an escape. As of today, we have yet to hear from any of the Turpins' children. None of them have come forward. They may choose to do so. They may choose never to do so, and it's completely understandable. Maybe someday one of them will write a book or participate in a documentary. Who knows? Anything is possible. But we can only imagine how frightening it was to make the decision to go out that window and make that call to 911. When we think about the case of Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina De Jesus, listening to the 911 call that Amanda Berry made, and don't even get me started on that 911 operator who took Amanda's call and the way that she spoke to her. Man, that is one of the cringiest 911 calls I've ever heard. But anyway, we could hear and feel the fear that Amanda was feeling when she made that call, right? She was so afraid that their captor would show back up and that they would be severely punished for what they were attempting to do. That's what these people who hold captives do. They break them down so badly with fear and abuse and intimidation. They no longer have the will, the strength, or the ability to even think about escaping. But then, like in last week's episode on wrongfully convicted Bruce Lisker, people who are being done wrong, you have to imagine that they are constantly thinking about how to make it right. The Turpin children were now not only 13 deep, they were getting older and smarter and more capable, and the will to escape and survive is only going to grow from there. The child that called was unable to provide any useful information as to her whereabouts. She had no idea where she was. She didn't even know the address of where they lived. Fortunately, law enforcement was able to track the phone. They found her. They picked her up and they rode back to the Turpin home together in their patrol car. When officers from the Riverside County Sheriff's Department descended upon the Turpin home following that call to 911, Louise and David Turpin were completely taken by surprise. As a matter of fact, they were dead asleep when deputies pounded on their door. No idea that one of their children had left the home and dialed 911. So whatever they were trying to do to stall answering the door, at the same time they were trying to remove as many of the children from being chained up and locked to the beds as possible. But it was too late. They couldn't get all of them undone. The deputies were still able to witness some of the children still chained. The Turpins were taken into custody, and I've told you their fate. The last report of the children's whereabouts were that the adults were transported to a medical facility for treatment, seven of them in total, and the six younger children were placed into two foster homes. Authorities described the children as stable, relieved, and friendly. Elizabeth, hearing this news that her sister and brother-in-law had done these things, the torture, abuse, 
starving their children, chaining them up. It's a thing that's almost impossible to believe could be real. Yet this is what they're saying on the news. This is what the sheriff's office, the county prosecutors, they're getting up on the press conferences and describing the horrors that they saw inside the Turpin home. So Elizabeth decided to go and take a look for herself. She came out to California and first stopped in to take a look at her sister's house. She walked around the outside along the perimeter, peered in through the windows. That's all she really needed to verify everything that she had been hearing on the news and told by the detectives on the phone who spoke to her. The last thing that Elizabeth needed to do was talk to Louise face-to-face and ask the hard questions. It had been more than two years since she had last spoken to her sister, and now there she was getting ready to talk to her at the prison. Louise offered Elizabeth an apology for the way that she had treated her, but beyond that, she had been advised to not discuss what exactly it was that went wrong. Louise tried to downplay the things that were being said about them in the media, but Elizabeth had already seen the inside of the home firsthand. It was obvious what was going on inside there. Whatever else the two of them discussed, and it probably wasn't all that much because the case was still winding its way through the court, the bottom line was Louise wanted to get across to not believe everything that she was reading or seeing in the news. In the beginning of this episode, I talked about how Elizabeth, in some ways, held herself accountable for not reporting the things that she knew to be going on to authorities sooner. To be honest, from the things that Elizabeth had experienced for herself during the time that she lived with them, I don't think that there was any information that she could have provided that would have warranted law enforcement or Child Protective Services to come out to their home. I actually find it hard to believe that in all the time the Turpins kept having more and more kids, that someone else didn't take notice. Like neighbors, you know? Neighbors can be nosy. If I knew a family to have that many kids and I never saw them playing outside or going to school, and every time I did see them, they appeared to be much too skinny, I can't say for sure that I would take that step and actually call. I'm kind of the same way that a lot of people are. It's just, you're not sure You're not wanting to cause a problem where there isn't one. But the Turpins were really that good at hiding. They moved to California for the simple fact that they would be able to hide in plain sight here. They did their homework. Ultimately, the people who are to blame are the two individuals who are likely going to be spending the rest of their lives in prison. But the state of California also bears the responsibility The question that gets asked over and over again is how can something like this happen? Well, all you got to do is go ask J.C. Dugard. She was held captive for 18 years in the backyard of a convicted and registered sex offender. Parole visits right there on their front porch. Didn't even bother to take a look at the bizarre encampment that he had in his backyard. I wonder if in their research, the Turpins were like, oh, look at those nutty Californians with that girl who went missing for 18 years, only to be discovered hiding right under their noses. Yeah, let's go to that state. That is what we are supposed to have these agencies for. Department of Children and Family Services, Child Protective Services, Social Workers, 
etc. To keep situations like the Turpins held accountable for what goes on behind closed doors. And it is unfortunate when we hear stories like this where this supposed homeschooling is involved and the whole thing gives the concept of homeschooling a really bad rap because it's been used in situations like this as a way of hiding abuse. The Turpins registered their home as a private school and David Turpin was listed as the principal. They called it the Sandcastle Day School. David Turpin didn't have a criminal background. He worked for this major defense company as a computer engineer. So they didn't even bat an eyelash when he started calling himself a private school principal. And what's more, the state of California, in all the years they had their private school registered, a representative from the state did not visit the Turpin home not one time. And that is a big problem. It doesn't take all that much to do an annual inspection. While I worked in preschool, we were visited by social services once a year to check everyone's credentials, that our CPR certifications were up to date, etc. The fire department marshal visited once a year to check for clear fire exits and functioning extinguishers. There really is no excuse to not have the same visit requirements for registered private schools. There is currently still no state agency in California that is responsible for overseeing private schools. The Department of Education released a statement days after the Turpin case broke and said that the department is sickened by this tragedy, but they do not approve, monitor, inspect, or oversee private schools, but would gladly work towards changing the laws. Apparently, private schools are subject to annual inspections by the state or local fire marshal, like I had just mentioned above, but the Turpins never informed Paris city officials that they were, in fact, operating a private school in their home. And because they are homeschooled, they are not required to be licensed. If it were licensed, then that licensing would have triggered the annual visits. The superintendent of the Paris Union High School District said the same week that the Turpin home was discovered that the school district has no duty to provide oversight of homeschools either. And the local educational agency, beyond sending the private school a letter that they may qualify for federal assistance, that is the extent of their interaction with the private school as well. They are not required to go and physically inspect the school. At the time that this happened, California only required a private school affidavit to establish a home as a private school, and this is something that the Turpins had been doing for several years, pretty much since they moved from Texas to California in 2010, leading up to the couple's arrest in 2018. The affidavit only lists the square footage of the school, or the house, and the district in which it is located, and the name of the principal of the school. The responsibility of obtaining a business license, as well as staying up to code with the safety and fire standards, is all on the private school itself. So, per usual, as the news of the conditions of the Turpin children and the home that they were being kept under, with this being under the guise of being homeschooled, legislators did start discussing enacting new laws to quote-unquote tighten up the state's regulations. I looked up the most current homeschooling requirements in California, and it does not seem all that much has changed in the almost two years since this all happened. In California, 
children are required to be enrolled in school. Home-based private schools must file a private school affidavit to begin homeschooling. Parents who file for the private school affidavit must provide all curricular, instructional, and other materials. And private school teachers must be persons capable of teaching. So basically, it's all been just a bunch of, we're sorry about the Turpins, but it's not our job to police homeschools. Advocates for responsible homeschooling would like to see a requirement in place that would call for an annual assessment by a mandated reporter, so situations like the Turpins can be identified. The goal isn't really to make homeschooling more difficult on parents. Ultimately, they would like to see it more difficult for people like the Turpins to use homeschooling as a veil for covering up their crimes. And the overriding message being sent here, as things hopefully improve, is for the community to not be afraid to make a call or get involved if something is suspected. It's not going to hurt anyone to just say something if you see something. Thirteen children spanning the ages of 2 to 29, and there was only ever one single phone call made on their behalf. The desperate one, made by one of the captives, late into the night of January 14th, 2018. The child who finally needed to stand up for herself and her brothers and her sisters because she simply couldn't take it anymore. Enough was enough, and nobody else was ever going to make that call for them. So as we reach the end of this episode, I don't know about you listening, But the question that eats away at me, like in so many other cases we cover, is why? Why did David and Louise Turpin do this? Why 13 children? Why the captivity and the abuse and the torture and the starvation? I can't wrap my head around any reasoning that makes any kind of sense. In court, some of their children defended them. They played the God card. Children are gifts from God. The more children, the more blessings. But soon it became too overwhelming and they didn't know what else to do. And they didn't know how to ask for help. I really don't want to take that away from the children who want to hold their parents in that light. But at the same time, I just can't accept that. Whether we are religious or not, there is no way I'm going to believe What happened to the Turpin children was the will of anyone, God included. That is what the 13 of them were put on earth to be subjected to? No, I'm not letting the Turpins off the hook that easily, excusing this away as God blessing them with child after child after child and it becoming too much for them. I really don't want to get into the freakiness of the Turpins' relationship or their sex life because, frankly, it's more than I can stomach right now. You can go online and read a little bit about their exploits. Louise's younger sister has spoken openly about it. I believe Elizabeth has written a book that details some of the Turpins' bizarre sexual proclivities. And to be honest, I think these 13 children were just a product of that. 
I don't know the ins and outs of their marriage, but it is quite clear that David and Louise Turpin were all about themselves. They renewed their wedding vows as many as three or four times in the years leading up to the discovery of their house of horrors. I mean, I get it. You love each other. You want to reaffirm your vows. Okay. But you have 13 children who are being completely mistreated, abused, and starved. Yet you need to be in Vegas, drag all of your kids out there to put them in these absolutely horrific matching outfits so these two assholes can renew their vows before some cheesy Elvis knockoff? Seriously? When I look at those pictures, Come on, dreamers, everybody with me. We are shaking our damn heads here. What is even happening? How is this even for real? Dude, if they had not taken pictures, I would have never believed this garbage. That's what the Turpins are. They are garbage people. Garbage human beings. That's all I can say about these two. We, as humans, have a fundamental, built-in system of basic love and care and empathy for the humans that we give birth to. How or why that went haywire with the Turpins is beyond anything I could even begin to try and explain or understand. In a 2018 article in Time magazine, though it says despite our inability to grasp what the Turpins actually did, experts still try to unravel it. Children are abused by all sorts of individuals, but more often than not, they are usually abused by their own parents. According to recent studies, it's 71.8% of the time that the parent is the abuser, with the highest risk factors involved being alcohol and drug abuse and domestic violence. But as far as anyone could see, drugs and alcohol were not an issue in the Turpin home. So they don't even get that excuse to fall back on. The abuse that the Turpin children endured was violent. But it wasn't like, for example, in a home that has a drinking or drug issue going on where a sudden outburst of violence occurs and a child is beaten in isolated incidents. The Turpin children were subjected to some of this type of abuse, but the abuse that was prevalent was more long-term taking place in a constant, non-stop torment that included not allowing them to use the restroom, only allowing them to shower once a year, starving them while Louise and David partake in eating all the good and delicious things in front of them, or taunting them with sweets and desserts. This sort of sustained, sadistic torment cannot be explained away by substance abuse. Some experts have said that it's possible that Louise and David Turpin are psychopaths. They might have some depression. They might have some bipolar disorder. They might be schizophrenic. They might have been abused themselves as children, though we do know that Louise suffered long-term sexual abuse at the hands of her grandfather. But all the experts will stop short of saying that any of that, none of these mental health concerns is in any way an excuse for what the Turpins did, but rather maybe factors of what they did. Other experts chimed in and said perhaps there might be some other diagnoses going on here. Maybe they were delusional or paranoid, 
causing them to behave in irrational, unreasonable, and abusive ways. They could have been thinking in their own minds that they are doing the best that they can to protect their children from the outside world. As misguided as that sounds, it's sort of a way to justify in their own minds that what they are doing was in the best interest of their children. Or maybe they think that their children are really bad and misbehaved kids and require this level of discipline, this corporal punishment, and being restrained by chains and padlocks was the only way to handle them. The Time Magazine article opined that as for the starvation, that might have been the Turpin's way of coping with having to feed 15 people. The only way to get by was on the bare minimum. But, you know, to me... David and Louise Turpin did not look like they themselves were starving or suffering or lacking any food or nourishment. Only the kids were. So they obviously weren't sacrificing themselves for the sake of their children. David Turpin is said to have had an annual salary with Northrop Grumman of about $140,000 a year. But they also filed for bankruptcy in 2011. And it is believed that because he was somewhat older than Louise, and he was the main breadwinner, that he was the one leading the charge within the home. Though Louise, being complicit, is just as equally responsible, at least in the eyes of the law. But most who have looked into this case strongly believe that Louise Turpin was just as engaged, just as willing of a participant in all of the abuse that was going on inside the home. The silver lining in all of this is that most experts agree that they are optimistic that the Turpin children do have the ability to recover from the trauma that they suffered, to heal, to get better, and to go on to have bright and happy futures. And that will bring this 122nd episode of California Dreaming to a close please come on over to our Facebook discussion group and request to join. It is there that we discuss the cases that we cover. We share our thoughts and opinions, not only about our show, but other podcasts that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched, books that you've read, as well as current news stories. We post about our pets. We post memes. Please come on over and share. You can also go over and follow the show's Facebook page, like that page and leave a review or a recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. This week, I would like to wish a happy birthday to Constance V on December 16th, Melissa C and LS on the 17th, Vicky S on the 21st, and Kelly P on the 22nd. California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to with an eclectic roster of shows with content, including true crime, history, sports, entertainment, gaming, and social media. So go visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. I've come to understand that when new episodes of California Dreaming are released, it will show up there first. You will find links to all of our podcasts as well as a direct link to our merchandise store. Again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for listening. I am your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams.
Dumb and Busted has been called, quote, one of America's greatest treasures by three out of three hosts of the show. Dumb and Busted is a weekly true crime comedy podcast with stories of exceptionally smart and insanely dumb crimes. Comedian Hunter Donaldson has hailed it as the greatest thing to come out of Portland since comedian Hunter Donaldson, who is me, also a host of the show. Podcasters Allison Copeland and Hannah Ether praise Dumb and Busted as, quote, found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Just more rave reviews from two other people who host the show. Catch us every Thursday and follow us at Dumb and Busted on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Crime you later!